with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as we continue our study in Paul's letter to this messed up church. We've been saying all along that, of course, Christians are messed up, but not all in all the same ways. But so also, friends, churches are messed up, but not all in all the same ways. And tonight we consider the first major problem Paul has to address with this messed up church, and it's the problem of tribalism or partisanship. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to consider God's word and its application for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Hear now the word of our God. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we bow before you. We acknowledge that this is your word, and the one thing I ask, that it would not be emptied of its power, but that you would show Jesus to, to us tonight, that he would be exalted, his gospel would be delighted in, and it would mold and shape your people. For I ask that in his name. Amen. Tribalism is common in our world. One tribe against another. As we read earlier in Titus, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Usually we try to keep it on the down low and not let it break out, obviously, right? Here in the USA, of course, we expect our politicians will be a little bit tribal, but not too much. Even his own Democrat Party whatever you think of the politics of it, thought he'd gone too far and they took him to the woodshed. Who am I talking about? When, when Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, recently said in a radio interview in a very public way, extreme conservatives, he said, have no place 
in the state of New York because that's not who New Yorkers are. Even his fellow partisans said, you can't say that. And of course, the conservatives said, of course we're New Yorkers and you can't kick us out. And there was, there was a massive uproar. I'm not interested in the politics of that. But I will say we generally like harmony better. It happens especially in moments of crisis, doesn't it? After the, Maris, the Boston Marathon bombing, it seemed like the whole world said, we are Bostonians. We're with you. We identify with you. Well, that's not the attitude that's at work in the church at Corinth. There's tribalism, partisanship, a party spirit among the believers. And Paul needs to address it. And I want to address it in four ways as we consider what Paul says to them. I want you to see his tender appeal to them. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, he says. Uh, And then I want you to see the truthful accusation he presents to them in verses 11 and 12. He, He tells you, here's exactly the problem as I see it. And then he applies a theological answer at verse 13 with its own illustration all the way through to verse 16. And then three applications that I want to make tonight from verse 10 and verse 17. So that's the outline, that's where we're headed. In the first place, there's a tender but tough appeal at verse 10. It's an appeal for unity from one brother to another. He writes, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree. Do you see that? Paul doesn't doesn't jump right to it and blast away. He doesn't cut to verse 11 And say, I know exactly what's wrong with you. Let me give it to you straight. This is what your problem is. No, he he first, actually, last couple of weeks, he actually thanks God for them and tells them he thanks God for them. He reminds them that God had savingly graced them, spiritually gifted them, and had given them sustaining grace because God is faithful. So he who had called them into fellowship in Jesus was going to keep them. He does all those things before he hammers away at their problems. So friends, I want you to see this. Verse 10 is not a setup. Paul isn't a boxer here, smooth talking his opponents. So they'll let their guard down so he can sucker punch them in the gut. That's not what he's doing. He's genuinely thankful for them, and he tells them that, and by the time you get to verse 10, he's piled up warm encouragements, and now when he finally makes his appeal, he says, not as a violent schoolmaster with a rod ready to beat those people who just don't have it right, but rather he appeals as a brother. I appeal to you, brothers. Verse 11, you've been quarreling, my brothers. Do you, do you see the affection here? It's familial language. We're in this together. I'm with you. I'm on your side. But certainly it is a bit tough too. I appeal to you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Paul invokes their savior, their Messiah, their God and King. Boom. Listen. He says. But don't do this for me. Do this for Jesus. Do what? What's his appeal? Notice the language. I appeal to you, verse 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree. 
and that there be no divisions among you. Paul here uses what other translators, doing it more literally, translate, speak the same thing. It's actually political language taken right out of the political life of their place. Speak the same things, he says. In other words, stop speaking different things. One says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas or Peter. That's what they've been saying. We'll get back to that in a minute. And Paul says, in light of that situation, he wants to stop them from saying different things and instead all say the same things. In other words, describe yourselves, Paul says, in a way that demonstrates not your divisions, but your unity in the body of Christ. The idea is not by agree, that, that you have to agree with one another over every detail so that you know, every Christian church should have the same color carpeting and Christians should all wear the same kind of clothing. That's not, of course, what he means. But he means that they would be unified and see themselves that way and present themselves that way as one people following one Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful Example of this in the life of the Calvinist, loaded language, we're not discussing that. But in the the life of the Calvinist, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, who said, frankly, there 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 were things in the preaching and teaching of John Wesley that absolutely detested him. He was he was referring to the Arminianism Arminianism and perfectionism that John Wesley taught. But considering Wesley himself to be a Christian and as a preacher of the gospel, second to no other Wesleyan. And we know that Wesley would have said the same about Spurgeon living in Spurgeon's time because Wesley honored his friend George Whitfield as a fellow Christian who held the same theology that Spurgeon did. So brother to brother, the Apostle Paul urges unity around Jesus. Now, why does he need to do that? That's the second thing. Notice his truthful accusation. What's gone wrong? What has he exposed them for? Well, verse 11, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. This is probably an early convert of the Apostle Paul's in Corinth, who's uh, perhaps, like Lydia in the book of Philippians, a wealthy, successful businesswoman who has people working for her, likely who've traveled to Ephesus where Paul is, and they've made mention of the problems. And so Paul writes from Ephesus, and he's, in other words, well-informed about the things he's speaking. He accuses, but it's a truthful accusation. He's got his facts straight. They know Chloe. They know her people are telling the truth. And what's the situation? There's quarreling produced by partisanship. And if they were so thick-headed, they didn't get what he was talking about, he says to them, well, what I mean is this, verse 12. One of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now listen, it's not that the church has split and become multiple churches. That's not the case here. He's writing to one church at Corinth. They're still together, but they're saying different things. And it's not not that some people in Corinth were believing the gospel, and others had been led astray to believe a false gospel. That's actually the situation in Galatia. So he writes Galatians, not Corinth. In Galatians, he has to say, I'm astonished that you have so quickly deserted him who called you 
by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul has to say to the Galatians, you've abandoned the good news. Keep going down that track and you're not even, you're not even a church, you're not even Christians. But that's not the issue in Corinth. It's not an issue of one side being the church and the other side being a false church. Or one side believing the gospel and another side not. But, but it is that there is a party, partisan, tribal spirit among the believers. I follow Paul, some said. He was our church planter. We all know church planters are really great guys. <laughs> Others said, I follow Apollos. Uh, the book of Acts tells you that Apollos actually followed Paul to Corinth. And he pastored there for a while. Paul will in, in chapter 3 say, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. But some, some were saying, you know, first pastor was okay. Second guy, he's my man. And others were saying, I follow Cephas or Peter. About Peter's ministry in Corinth, we don't know anything, whether he ever even actually went there himself. And there was a third group, or there was a fourth group. They said, I am of Christ. I follow Christ. And here, friends, just like the others, they're boasting. Now look, boasting in Christ is fine, but boasting in yourself for following Christ is a sin, especially the way this group is doing it. It's not that they're putting Christ first, but they see themselves as the super spiritual group that created another clique, as Paul thinks, against the other cliques. And, and so it's as if they are saying, not that we belong to Christ, but you know, Christ, he belongs to us, supremely at least. Uh, there, there are all kinds of illustrations of this in the history of the church. Alexander Campbell tried this in the first half of the 19th century. He was going to abolish denominations and start over with the, the simplicity of New Testament Christianity without all the modern divisions. But we know he succeeded in creating, of course, he and his followers, was simply one more denomination, the Christian church, disciples of Christ. At Corinth here, they are all taking pride in following one leader or another. And they were, because of that, filled with a kind of self-importance for being, they thought, in the right group. And they were looking down on everyone else. Uh, listen to what one pastor says in this regard. There is a great danger of taking pride in knowing and be being associated with important people. Most of us feel like nobodies in a world where the media are constantly holding up the desirability of being well-known. So the way millions of people, Christians, I add, try to satisfy this desire is to line up behind somebody who is somebody. We may read all their books, listen to all their tapes. We may listen to their radio program, watch their TV show. We may go to their church or take their class or get on their mailing list and get so familiar with their teaching and their way of doing things that we begin to idealize them and absolutize them. And the effect of that sort of vicarious ego trip is that anyone who is not on the same bandwagon as us, well, they're generally looked down on. 
who among us isn't guilty of that, hasn't ever been guilty of that. And believe me, your church planting pastor wants you to be for him, (laughs) even if you disagree with him over texts and interpretations. But he ought never to want you to align with him and to align against other preachers of the gospel to exclude them from the fellowship of the church. That kind of partisanship is divisive, and frankly, it leads us to act like fools, right? We begin to believe and act like, my favorite minister can do no wrong. Yours can do no right. My favorite church, it can do no wrong. Yours, it can do no right. My favorite denomination, it can do no wrong. Yours? It can do no right. And we begin to act like fools. We quit learning from one another. And we quit relating to one another as if we don't belong to one another. And Paul says, Paul says that's not right. And to be clear, Paul doesn't get into why they've aligned themselves with these certain particular leaders. Nor does he fault the leaders for anything that they have said or done that has created this. He's not picking on himself, Apollos, or Peter, for having fostered this is a follower problem. It's a problem in the pew. Not here, a leader problem. Don't get me wrong, you can be a problem in this pulpit, of course. But you see what Paul is saying. And so there's this truthful accusation. Chloe's people, they told me this is going on. So what's Paul's response to that? How would you help a church in that kind of a situation. How do you counter it? Well, here's his remedy, and it is a theological argument for unity at verse 13. What does he say to them? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Do you... Look, don't fly past that verse. This is the solution to the sin. This is the meat of his argument. Is Christ divided? Question number one. Three short rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? He wants you to think about the person of Christ. Is he split? Is he chopped up and divided among his people? No, that's absurd. And since Christ is incapable of being divided... So is the church incapable of being divided because the whole church belongs to a whole Christ. There is only one head and there is only one body. So quit acting like Christ has many churches. There is only one because he is only one. That's the first part of his argument. The second is, Was Paul crucified for you? He he appeals to the work of Christ, the cross of Christ. What did Jesus do for you? Did somebody else redeem you, Paul says? It wasn't me. I didn't die for you. Quit saying you follow me, is what he says to them. And I would say to all of us, the early church fathers didn't die for you. Tertullian and Cyprian and Basil and Augustine didn't. And the monks and the popes of the Middle Ages didn't die for you. Not Gregory, not Bernard of Clairvaux, not St. Francis of Assisi, and not John Paul II. And the reformers 
didn't die for you. Not Luther, not Calvin, not Knox. John Piper didn't die for you. Tim Keller didn't die for you. David Platt didn't die for you. Chris Tomlin didn't. Matt Redman didn't. And your favorite hymn writer, or mine, John Newton, he didn't die for you. And partisanship, he's saying, is dishonoring to Christ who died for your sins. Only Christ purchases us, and it is by his blood. Follow him and say that you do, says Paul. Then he asks the third question. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here it's, it's a sermon with its own illustration. I think that's what he's doing. He's saying, well, he's reminding you here that baptism is not unimportant. He, he wouldn't have brought up baptism if you could shrug it off and say, well, baptism doesn't matter. Or if they had no experience with it, right? He, he, in fact, as believers in Jesus, he assumes that they've been baptized. Jesus commands it. And so he begins to speak about baptize, baptism. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Baptism, friends, is the application of water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus commanded in Matthew chapter 28. By it, we are marked visibly with what's promised in the gospel, cleansing from sin. And we are baptized into Christ, into union with Christ. And, and there's, 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 a, there's, there's a ton of things we could say. It also is the beginning sacrament of inclusion into Christ's visible church. And so Paul says, were you baptized in the name of Paul and Paul's church? No. So so we need to be reminded here, baptism is not unimportant. But we all also ought to say baptism is not all important. I mean, he does go on to say in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Now, Paul wouldn't be saying that if he believed that applying water to a person washed away their sin and saved their soul. If Paul believed that, he would never say, I'm glad I didn't baptize you. Jesus, in fact, didn't even send me to baptize. He sent me to preach. No, he would have baptized as many as possible to save as many as possible if he thought the water would wash away the sin. And then he would praise God he got to baptize all these people and -and so-and-so's family. But Paul knows it's God who saves by spiritual baptism, by the Holy Spirit, applying Christ to us and uniting us to Christ, of which the water is a picture and a visible symbol and a guarantee of what's promised. And God, it is grace, works with the physical as he accomplishes the spiritual when and where and however he pleases. And there's more to be said about that. But, but Paul says, Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel to tell people what Jesus had done for them and to call them to believe in him. And and so if water baptism saves, he wouldn't say he was glad he didn't baptize. So baptism is not all important, but it's not unimportant. He goes on to thank God 
that he baptized none of them except Gaius and Crispus. He remembers a couple of guys that they know. And then, and then it's hilarious at, at verse, he says, you know, I, um, at verse 16, there's a parenthetical because perhaps Stephanus is right there with him when he's writing this letter. And Stephanus says, well, you know, you baptized me in my household. And so he says, oh, yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. It's, it's a beautiful moment in which the scripture sovereignly ordained by the Holy Spirit and overseen by the Holy Spirit makes use of even the fallible memory of an apostle to accomplish God's purposes. But that's a whole nother can of worms. Paul says, you know, beyond that, I don't know who I baptized. And it's almost like he says, and I, I don't really care because that's not the point. You were baptized into the name of God, not a minister. And the promises of the gospel were guaranteed to you by God and not a minister. And in baptism, you committed to following God and not a minister. And so he's saying, look, we're all on the same team. So take the same side because we have one Lord, one Savior. And we're baptized in the name of one God in whose one church we have all entered. So Paul's remedy for them is incredibly theological. Interestingly, his remedy is not organizational. One reason people tend to think that the church is divided today is because they think Christian unity is essentially organizational. But there's not a word here about organizational unity. He doesn't make organization the remedy for their problem. He doesn't say somehow, you know what you really need to do is align yourselves under one guy. I don't care if it's Paul, Apollos, or Peter. Pick one. Some bishop, some apostle, some minister. He doesn't say that at all. Jesus is the unifying principle of the church. We, have a, we already have spiritual unity in Jesus. And to see that God has already aligned all Christians under Jesus, who alone is the king and head of the church, in whom alone we already have unity, is vital. And the answer to disunity and to a party spirit is to see what we have in common. Christ, his cross, and baptism in his church. And then live in light of that, is what Paul says, as One early church pastor put it, Cyprian, as there are many rays of the sun, but one light, and many branches of a tree, but one strength based in its tenacious root. And since from one spring flow many streams, yet the unity is still preserved in the source. Separate a ray of the sun from its body of light, its unity does not allow a division of light. Break a branch from a tree. When broken, it will not be able to bud, cut off the stream from its fountain, and that which is cut off dries up. Thus also, he says, the church shone over with the light of the Lord, sheds forth her rays over the whole world, yet it is one light which is everywhere diffused, nor is the unity of the body separated. That's Paul's argument. The church is not divided Because Christ is not. And it has three very practical applications for us, friends. Three. And uh, let me highlight them. You'll find them in verse 10 and verse 17. The first one may not be quite as obvious as the other two. The first one is this. To those disillusioned by Christianity or the church's partisanship 
over that issue. Don't reject the church, but reform it. Whenever we see partisanship, Paul says, we shouldn't be surprised. Even a church I planted, Paul says to us, had this problem. And for those who would look at the modern church with all these Christians holding a tribal attitude and turn around and then say, therefore, the gospel is not true. And therefore, I don't need to be in the church. I'd simply say, no, therefore, the gospel is true. The fact that we still sin keeps proving we need a savior who is better than us. And Paul's answer isn't to drop out. He doesn't say, Embrace Jesus, dear Corinthians, but reject the church. I mean, that would be to say, if we did that, to say, Jesus, I really like you, but I just can't stand that bride of yours. You know, that woman you came for, loved, died for, rescued, cleaned and keep, and have determined to live with forever. You know her? I'll take you, but not her. No, friends, Paul's solution isn't to reject the church, but reform the church. That's why he's writing them, to correct them. Now, the second is to ministers and leaders and teachers in the church, and future ones as well. Don't preach yourself, preach Christ. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. My first order of business, Paul says, is to preach. And when I preach, I don't do it to draw people to myself. And I don't speak eloquently so they'll be impressed with me. But I speak plainly so that Jesus, they can see. When um, John Wesley, we mentioned him earlier, actually in the service, we sang his brother's hymn. Jesus, lover of my soul. When John Wesley was returning home one night from a service... He was robbed. The thief, however, found his victim had only a little bit of money and a bunch of Christian literature. And as the thief was leaving, Wesley called out, Stop! I have something more to give you. And the the surprised robber paused. My friend, said Wesley, you may live to regret this sort of life. And if you ever do, there's something to remember. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The thief hurried away. Leslie prayed his words wouldn't fall on deaf ears. Years later, he's greeting people after worship on a Sunday, and a man, a stranger, walks up to him, the thief, now a believer in Christ and a successful businessman, and says, I owe it all to you. Oh, no, my friend, said Leslie. Not to me but to the precious blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. That's the attitude. And so teachers must ask themselves this. Is my ambition to become known as a great speaker? Or is it for my hearers to know a great Savior? To make a name for myself, or to make Jesus' name great in the eyes of others? And To have people walk away from the church saying, wow, what a great sermon. Or, praise the Lord, what a fabulous Savior Jesus is to me. So to teachers, I say, don't be so clever 
that people get drawn to the preacher instead of drawn to Christ. Preach him, not yourself. And finally, for all of us, don't end relationships, but mend relationships in the body of Christ is what Paul tells, tells them. Go back to verse 10. When he appeals to them, he says, it's that all of you might speak the same language, say the same thing, agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. And that word there is to be knit together. It's used, in, in, it's used of fishermen who, after a long day of fishing, as they clean their nets, find holes in them, and they have to be re-knit, repaired, mended. That's his word for united. Be knit together. Don't be tribal, he says. Accept all Christians as your family and love them genuinely. And I would say to us, now we can say we love those Christians over in Africa or Asia. We could say we love those Christians in Fort Smith and Fort Worth, and we could say we love Christians in the second century or second millennium, but the fact is our love has to land on someone. And our efforts at unity have to begin relationally and close to home among believers where we live. So I say to us, Redeemer, are we concerned about Christian tribalism? Make and keep relationships with believers here at Redeemer. But don't be partisan. Make and keep relationships with Christians beyond the walls of Redeemer. Live out your unity that Christ has already established. Mend relationships. Don't end relationships because we're one body sharing one Christ one cross one baptism don't reject the church reform it don't preach yourself preach Christ don't end but mend your relationships let's pray together our father in heaven make it so in our experience and the commitments of our heart Grant us to walk faithfully with you and in loving kindness with one another. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.